Father, we thank you for this good day which you have given to us, another day in which we can focus on the Word of God and give praise to you who, have, who has given to us life, not only life here on this earth, but life eternal as we trust in Christ. And it seems, Father, as we go through the course of a week, we're bombarded with the philosophy and the teaching of the world and we really need the time of focusing in on the Word and fellowshipping together with other believers that we might be strengthened in our faith and keep the proper perspective. Father, we pray that as we study this passage in Genesis today, that again our uh, orientation will be towards listening to the voice of your Holy Spirit. For he is not only the author of the Word, he is the teacher of the Word. And we ask, Lord, that even again, as we have been admonished in James, to be not hearers of the word only, but doers. And may we live out the word of God daily, that our lives will reflect the reality of Christ to our loved ones, to neighbors, friends, co-workers, all those that we have contact with through each day. Thank you for your presence this hour in Christ's name. Amen. Can you all hear me? This uh, is the cooling system and uh, does make a bit of noise. If you will, would you turn to Genesis chapter 43? We'll begin reading at verse 11. Genesis chapter 43, beginning at verse 11. We've begun looking at uh, this particular chapter, which is, I, I don't know, if you're into... Uh, uh, rags to riches, romance, uh, the kinds of things where the good boy, I mean uh, the local boy makes good or you, you see the underdog come out on top, whatever. If, if any of those are the way you look at things, then uh, the chapter here and then the following chapter seem to really uh, be kind of exciting, I think. We've looked at the need for the family to return to Egypt because of the great famine. And they've been debating this issue. And Jacob, of course, has been resisting allowing Benjamin to go down to Egypt because he was afraid that he would not return. But finally, as we read beginning in verse 11, he has a change of mind. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. And take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take also your brother and arise and return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man, that he may release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. You'll notice in this particular passage in verse 14, that Jacob pronounces a blessing upon his, his boys as they're going south, as they're going over into the land of Egypt. And what's interesting about this blessing is he doesn't just say, 
O Yahweh or Elohim, bless these men as they travel. But he invokes the name of the covenant God. He invokes the name El Shaddai, God Almighty. And I think it's very important here. First of all, this is only the third time that the term El Shaddai is found in the book of Genesis. First of, God, uh, of all, God used it of himself when he made the covenant with Abraham, and that is one of the reasons why El Shaddai is the covenant name of God. Also, J uh, Isaac used it when he was sending Jacob off to the land of Paden Aram. He asked that El Shaddai, the covenant God, be with him as he go, as he went to Paden Aram, that is up to the northern part of what is today Syria. And then finally, when Jacob himself returned to the promised land and encountered God at Bethel for the second time, he saw God there as El Shaddai. And so now he is invoking the name of the covenant God to be with his sons as they travel. God Almighty. Again, remembering that Elohim was a more generic name uh, by which God was known. Yahweh was a specific name known only to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through them then to Israel. The God who is because he is. But there's a certain import to the term El Shaddai. Uh, it's, it's the name of the God who can do all things. In Greek, they would translate it Pantocrator. Uh, the, the, the God of all power. He wants this God to be with his sons, that they would be protected, especially, of course, that Benjamin will be protected. And then his part of his prayer is that El Shaddai will touch the heart of the man. That is, of course, Joseph. Of course, nobody here knows it's Joseph. In Jacob and his family didn't know it was Joseph. They, he was just the man, as far as they knew. Uh, that God would touch the heart of the man down there in Egypt and that he would have compassion. Now the word which is translated compassion in this passage means to have pity, to have mercy. And it's the word which is used relative to a superior in his relationship to an inferior, a social or political superior to one who is inferior. It's a term which is most often used of God relative to his people that he might have compassion, pity, mercy uh, because of his power and, his, and, and all that he has that he might have mercy on those who are less fortunate, less powerful. And this is the word which Jacob uses in his prayer before God Almighty. Jacob is very desperate here. He not only wants Simeon to be released. Now, remember, Simeon is in prison down there in Egypt being held as a surety that the uh, others would come back again and bring Benjamin. He wants Simeon released, but more than anything else, he wants to be sure that Benjamin comes back, as well as the rest of the, bro of the brothers, but particularly Benjamin. I, I don't think Jacob would have been happy with the loss of any of them. But, of course, Benjamin is still the... the, the heart of the matter as far as Jacob is concerned relative to his 12 sons. I think there's a very important attitude displayed in this passage that we need to take note of. First of all, we discover that 
Jacob is realizing here that his desires may not be fulfilled. Jacob's desire is, as I said, that Simeon will be brought back, Benjamin will come back safely, all the brothers will come back safely, they'll come back with food, everything will be fine, and it'll all be straightened out with the man. This is his desire. But he acknowledges that maybe God's desire is not the same as his desire. And in the very process of referring to God as El Shaddai, he is acknowledging that it is God's will that will be accomplished whether or not it is in line with his own will. And so we find here an attitude of resignation to the will of God on the part of Jacob. And we see this at the end of verse 14 where he says, As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. That's an attitude of resignation to something that he has no control of ultimately. He has a, the opportunity of prayer. He has prayed. He has invoked the name of God Almighty, but now he is surrendering to God Almighty that God's will would be accomplished. This is reminiscent of Esther. Remember, as Esther was... Uh, convinced ultimately by Mordecai that she had to go in before uh, Xerxes, who was her husband but was also the uh, emperor of the great Persian empire. And because of the laws of the Medes and the Persians of that day, no one could go in before the emperor unbidden, uninvited. And so she knew she was going to have to go, although she hadn't seen him for a month, the passage tells us in, in, in Esther. But she chose to go in before him uninvited. And remember her words, if I perish, I perish. And at the same time, thinking about this, I was reminded of the words of Job. In the first chapter of Job, let me just read a couple of verses there. Job, of course, as you know, had a bit of stress. Put it mildly. At, at the end of the first chapter, as all these catastrophes have come upon him, in verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. All has come upon him, and he now is displaying a spirit of resignation to the will of the Almighty. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. He knew from whence came all of his wealth and all that he had in life, and it was God's prerogative to take it all away if he so cho chose. And that's the attitude that Job had. Now I think it's very important in all of this that we look at God's viewpoint here. God is a compassionate God. He is a God of understanding. God doesn't look down upon us like the God of, of Islam looks down at, his, at the people and smacks them around, and you never know what he's going to do next. We have a God who is consistent, 
a God who cannot be otherwise because it is his nature to be consistent. He, one of his attributes is compassion, as well as love and goodness and mercy and all of these other things. These are his attributes. This is what God radiates to us because he cannot radiate anything else. And so as we think about God here, God hates arrogance and God hates rebellion. This is so clear from Scripture. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble, Scripture tells us. And as God looks down upon us, his compassion is upon those who submit to him no matter how they submit. Even if they submit with, even if we submit with weak faith resignation. Oh, there's nothing I can do about it. Oh, God, just go ahead and have your will. I don't understand it all, but just do what you're going to do. God doesn't look down at us and say, you, you dummy, you're supposed to be enthusiastic and, and really, no. God knows where we are. God knows our thoughts. And, and God doesn't expect us to have, you know, enthusiastic, uh, positive faith about everything that happens in our lives. Because as God looks down upon us, he knows that it is our nature to avoid pain, right? Why do we go to the hospital when we have great pain? <laughs> to get rid of the pain, right? This is the idea anyway. And, and God knows, in fact, if you go back and look at the ancient Greeks, they kept defining what is good, what is happiness, what is joy. Almost all of those definitions had something to do with pain. You know, avoiding pain, not having pain. Uh, this was the great uh, 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 goal in life, to avoid pain. So God does not condemn us if we are unenthusiastic in our submission to something that we believe He's going to do that may cause us pain. I think it's really important we understand that. Because we can put a guilt trip upon ourselves uh, thinking that, oh, God doesn't love me and God thinks I'm a jerk because I'm not really excited about this pain that's coming up. I'd like to turn to James chapter 1. And this is going to sound like it's the opposite of what I just said. But let me bring it all together. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in, in nothing. Now, first of all, we need to note that James' words are words of encouragement. They're, they're words of admonition to, to believers. The whole scripture is written for us that we might have understanding of what God's will is for us and how it is to live the Christian life. That's the purpose of the Word of God. God does not assume that we know it all to begin with. The person who says he knows it all is the person who's the most ignorant of all. Because anybody who is wise, the more we know, the more we recognize we don't know. It's often the high school dropout, and pardon me, I am not speaking of anybody in this room that I know of, but it's often the high school dropout who thinks he knows it all. Whereas the person who's gone on to many, many years of education realizes there is so much out there, there's no way I can even begin to probe 
small little area, let alone know it all. Aristotle, the third century Greek, classical Greek uh, philosopher, did attempt to know everything there was to know about everything. But of course, there wasn't near as much to know in those days <laughs> as there is now. And of course, he became the authority on chemistry and biology and astronomy or astrology, politics and philosophy. He was the authority in all these areas. And even into the medieval ages, they were still looking back to Aristotle as the primary source that you look to to understand knowledge in all these areas. And of course, now we look back at Aristotle and we realize, you know, he had a lot of interesting philosophical ideas, but he didn't know much about the real world in which we live. It, it's interesting, I was just noticing the other day they were talking about uh, some mid-ocean studies they're doing and they're probing down at mid-depths in the ocean, I don't know, 8,000 feet down or whatever it is, and they're discovering species of life down there that they never had seen before, ever. And things living down there, pretty ugly things that they showed on television there, these cameras that are down there. But they're discovering new species every day as they probe down there. I mean, so little we really know about all there is to know. James is in this passage encouraging us to consider our trials from a different viewpoint. We tend to view our lives from our own introspective perspective, if you will. We, we tend to have a selfish viewpoint about life. And we view everything according to how it affects us and how we feel about everything, rather than assuming the biblical viewpoint of looking at everything, first of all, as much as we can, as God views things, and then also from the other person's perspective. We're told to love God, and then we're told to love others as we love ourselves. And James here is trying to help us to view our trials from the final result rather than from the trouble of the moment. Look at the final result that we are going to be made more complete in Christ. God does not enjoy putting us through trials but he's willing to do it for our good. Now, we as parents sometimes don't inflict as much uh, discipline on our children as we ought because we're cowards. But God is not a coward. And God knows what needs to be done, and God will do it. We were listening to Betty Elliott tape on, on our recent little trip. We took three days and went away for a bit. And uh, she was saying that there was this mother that was telling her that she couldn't stand to, to punish her child because she just loved her too much. And uh, Betty Elliott said, well, God says that you hate your child. You don't love your child. Because if you're not willing to punish your child, then you hate your child. Because God says the parent that loves the child will punish, will discipline the child, as God does. He's not afraid to do it. And he will do it. And God allows things into our lives all for the purpose of disciplining us and making us more like Christ, which is his goal. But it does take time and experience before the viewpoint that James is talking about here becomes real. 
we, we shouldn't berate ourselves if we face this, this oncoming trial and we don't say, oh, it's a joy, I'm having this trial. He says count it all joy. That should be our goal. Our, our goal should be to begin to view things from God's perspective rather than from our own selfish perspective. But it takes time. It takes experience. And God understands this. And so God is patient with us. In the meantime, the important thing is that we do as Jacob did here. We submit to the will of God, whether enthusiastically or unenthusiastically. Whether it's a willing submission or simply a resignation because we know nothing else to do, that's what's important, that we do it. Ultimately, as we learn to trust God more, our attitude will change. But it is a lifetime process. And the pr it, it takes a long time before the fact that God's love for us is perfect and His care for us is perfect finally sets in so that we can view all of our afflictions from that perspective. It takes a long time because we're used to living in a world where you can't really trust each other perfectly, can you? The person that you love may hurt you. Uh, the person that you thought would do something because they're a responsible person may act irresponsibly. And so we learn in life to protect ourselves. But God, we must learn, does not ever act irresponsibly. He never acts unlovingly. He never does something that is not for our good. And therefore, eventually, our faith is strong in Him, and we trust Him even through the hard times. And it becomes less resignation and more counting it all joy, as James advocates. We have a plaque on our wall in our living room that was given to us by a dear friend. It's called The Weaver. Some of you certainly have uh, read this poem, but let me just read it here. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hands as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Again, it's like the great trees that stand along the coast of California and other places too. Trees that have been buffeted by the prevailing westerlies from the time they first came out of the ground as little seedlings. And as they grew, they were constantly buffeted by the wind. And sometimes they show that in that they're bent a little bit inland and they're, they're, uh, the, the greenery is swept sort of inland. But as you look at those trees, you know the roots are deep because that constant buffeting forces the root deeper and deeper to keep the tree upright. And God allows the hard things into our lives that our roots will go deep in Him. He doesn't want this shallow, easy believism as J. Vernon McGee used to use the term. 
which I think is, is very rampant in the evangelical church. People whose, whose faith in God is, is only as deep as everything's going okay. But as soon as things get hard, suddenly, they don't go to church anymore. They're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites over there. Or, or, or they bail out of their marriage or whatever because there's no depth to their commitment to Christ. Either they have, have not responded to the storms that have come by driving the root deep, or somehow they've been sheltered and the storms have not impacted them. We need to allow the storms that come, the difficult times that come, the hard things that come, and many of you in this room have experienced some very, very hard things. We need to allow those to drive our roots deep in Christ that we can come to the place where we count it all joy. Jacob has not yet come to that place, but he will because little does he know what great joy God has for him just a few months away. A few weeks away, actually, from this point. And for all of the brothers, that this burden they've been carrying for 20 years, yes, self-inflicted, but this burden they've been carrying for 20 years will finally be lifted. And then, of course, it's easy to count it all joy. But the point is to count it all joy while the storm is raging. But if we don't, God doesn't say, you heathen, you faithless one. God looks at us in compassion and mercy, and he understands. And he says, I'll wait, and you will grow, and you will arrive at the place where you can say, thank you, Lord, for all that you've brought me through and for the storms that have impacted my life. The brothers took the gift, and we read about the gift, and we talked about it last week, about each of the items that were involved in this, in this gift. They, they took the gift that had been prepared, and they embarked on their journey to Egypt. The entire two-week journey, or however long it took, at least two weeks, is summed up in the statement in verse 15, then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. <laughs> you ever had a two-week vacation that seemed like that? can sum it up in one sentence. <laughs> well, this was no vacation, of course. I believe it was a very quiet trip. I, I don't think there was much joviality amongst the brothers. As they launched on this trip, I think there was anxiety. Each one felt anxious because what is the man going to do? Yes, we brought Benjamin, but why was the money in our sacks? They were very, very concerned. And right in the midst of all of this, their hearts were guilty because of what they had done to Joseph. And they knew that El Shaddai, God Almighty, could protect them, yes, but he could also turn them over to the Egyptians and enslave them there in Egypt, and it would be his right to do so because of what they had done to Joseph. They had no reason to believe that Joseph would have mercy upon them because the only time they had met him, he was as hard-nosed as anybody and didn't let on uh, that he gave a rip about them. In fact, he treated them as if they were truly spies. And so they had no reason to believe that he would have mercy upon them. Their only hope was based on their very slim faith in the power and the mercy of El Shaddai. 
But what does the Scripture say about slim faith? If we have faith but as a grain of mustard seed, we can say to this mountain, be removed. God doesn't look down upon us and say, well, I'm going to bless you because you've got a watermelon faith, you know. But you, because yours is the side of a peanut, I'm not going to do anything. No. If we have but the slightest faith that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He will do, God acts. And as He acts, our faith grows and it becomes larger. And we're able to trust Him for even greater things. That's how Christianity works. Verse 16, Genesis 43. Then Joseph saw Benjamin with them, and he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, It is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. I think that the first six words of the 16th verse are, are just pregnant with emotion. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them. Now we can just take that as a matter of fact. But can you imagine the feelings that must have overwhelmed Joseph as he laid eyes on Benjamin. He had not seen Benjamin since Benjamin was a toddler. And now Benjamin was a man in his early 20s. And Joseph, of course, wouldn't have recognized him if he had just seen him in a crowd. But, of course, seeing him with the brothers, he recognized him because he was the only one he didn't recognize. Now, his concern was that to discover whether Benjamin had been mistreated by his brothers as he, Joseph, had been. But that concern was quickly allayed because it was obvious that Benjamin was well cared for. Probably the most watched over young man in history by ten brothers. Can you imagine on the trip? They made sure he was always in the center. They made sure whenever they camped that he was always surrounded. They didn't want him to even get bit by a scorpion or anything along the way. They kind of hovered around him. This was not only because of their fear of what Joseph would do to them when they got down there if they didn't have Benjamin in good health, but because of their own guilty consciences of what they had done to Joseph, and they are now making up for it by bending over backward towards Benjamin. I think that they were ready to do more for Benjamin than even Jacob, their father, was willing to do. He had no fear in releasing Benjamin into the care of the brothers because they would watch over him like a bunch of mother hens. I, put yourself in Benjamin's sandals. Can you imagine? Now, I, I suppose there are those people who would have the attitude, well, I really deserve this, and I really like this royal treatment, and I like to just be sit back. I don't think so. I think Benjamin got tired of it. He got tired of being treated like he was some kind of a porcelain doll, you know, that was, might crack at the first uh, stress. I think he wanted to be equal. 
He wanted to do work too. He wanted to be responsible too. He wanted to be exposed to danger as the rest of them were. He didn't want to be treated as something special. I really believe that was probably Benjamin's attitude. I don't think it was a spoiled brat, even though his father wasn't too wise in preferring him above his brothers. I believe Joseph was emotionally overwhelmed at the sight of his only full-blood brother. A young man he had no hope that he would ever see in this life. And I think in his heart was praise to God. How great is this God I serve who has wonderfully fulfilled my wildest hopes. Now certainly, after he had required the brothers to bring Benjamin back, he had some hope. But I'm thinking back to the time when he was prime minister before his brothers had ever come. Did he ever have any hope of seeing Benjamin or his father or of any of his brothers again? Not much, I don't think. But now through this process, God is beginning to fulfill this greatest desire of his life. I think both to protect his emotion, his emotions here, and to maintain the air of aloofness, he ordered his house steward to go out there, meet the brothers, and bring them. He didn't go out himself. Of course, he didn't need to. He was second highest person in all the land in terms of power. And uh, so he sent out his house steward to uh, bring the boys, bring, bring his brothers to his house for the noon meal. Now, who in the world is this house steward? Well, we're not told. But I think we can uh, bring up a parallel here. I believe this house steward was to Joseph as Joseph was to Potiphar. I believe he was the man who was char in charge of, of Joseph's affairs as Joseph was about the affairs of state. He took care of Joseph's estate. He was obviously with Joseph during many of the activities that Joseph did because he was the one who put the money back into the sacks when they first returned back to Canaan. So he was sort of like uh, Joseph's right-hand man who, who did whatever Joseph needed to have done. Now let's think about the, four, the, the ten brothers. I, I think that without a doubt, the brothers had at least four things in mind that they were hoping Joseph would do here. First of all, that, they, that Joseph would check, make sure Benjamin's here. Okay, Benjamin's here, fine, release Simeon. Then that he would accept the money back that had been returned in their, uh, in their sacks and, and just consider it a mistake. Then that he would sell them the grain they needed now, and then he'd let them go home right away. I think those are the four things that they hoped for. I think this was their, their greatest hope. They wanted to have as little to do with Joseph as possible. In fact, if he ignore, ignored them other than doing these four things, that was just fine with them. There's a human uh, phrase that we often hear, that the best laid plans of mice and men go off astray. Who, who was it that said that? Burns. Burns? <laughs> but God often has something in store for us that don't fit with our plans. The best laid plans of, I don't know, do mice plan? 
<laughs> At least the best laid plans of men and women go off astray because of many factors. But the factor here that we're concerned about is the factor called God. God had a different plan than the four brothers had. But of course, God's plans are always better than our plans. He had something in store for them that they could not have even imagined. I don't think it was possible for them, even in their wildest imagination, to imagine what God had planned for them. I think that reminds us, doesn't it, of 1 Corinthians 2.9, where we read, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Did the ten brothers love God? Well, I think their love was pretty small. I think it was pretty weak. But I think they had a love for God. I think they had a lot of fear of God. But the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And out of wisdom will be born love for God. And although their love for God was very small, God was going to do a wondrous thing for them. I think the measure of our love for God, like the measure of our faith for God, no matter how small, is honored by Him. Because Jesus walked amongst us as a man, therefore He understands where we come from. Not that we have an excuse to say, well, you know, my parents did this to me, or my boss did that to me, and that's why I'm the way I am. No, it's not my fault. God looks beyond that. And, and, and God says, you love me as little as you love me, you believe in me as little as you believe in me, I will do good for you, and that love will grow and that faith will grow. And I think that's what God is doing for the brothers here. Their love is weak, but they're learning... And this whole event, which we'll be reading about in the rest of the chapter and in the next chapter, will serve to push them a long way down the road of faith and love towards this God that they know is Yahweh. Again, I, I don't know, and I've said this several times, but I think we have to constantly remind ourselves they don't have the book. They can't turn to the book and be encouraged, you know? Turn to some whatever and and, uh, you know, it says that God will be with you and God will help you and God will be with you through the deep waters. They couldn't turn to the Psalms or any place else. They only knew what they had been told by Jacob, by their grandfather Isaac, and that they had heard about Abraham. And, and so their faith was based on limited knowledge. We haven't, <laughs> if, if we talk about excuses, we don't have the excuses they had. If our faith and, and love is lame, we don't have the excuse they had. Because we have this whole book here, which gives us all that God wants to say to us. All the encouragement we need, all the instruction we need, all the words of discipline that we need are all here. And if we're weak, it's nobody's fault but our own. If we fail, it's nobody's fault but our own. But again, God is compassion wants us to turn to the book and make it a part of our lives. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. 
Why is it we sin? Often it's because we don't have God's Word hidden in our heart. We ignore it. We don't really make it a crucial part of our daily walk. I don't think they were happy to see Joseph Steward coming. I don't think they were happy to be told, you're coming to Joseph's palace. <laughs> I think that was the last place they wanted to go, except maybe prison, because they thought this was one step on the way to prison. Why does this man, we want him to just ignore us. <laughs> Say, hey guys, I see Benjamin, here's Simeon, here's your food, go home. <laughs> That's what they wanted. But he's saying, come to Joseph's palace, to the man's palace. So what do they do? They immediately begin to jump to conclusions. What do you do if you have a guilty conscience? It becomes obvious then that the reason this evil is happening is because of what I did over here. They feared that they were going to be enslaved because of the money that had shown up in their sacks the first time. But the root behind that was their guilty conscience for what they had done to Joseph and because they knew God to be a God of justice and therefore this was all happening to them. They felt it was a trap that would result in their enslavement. They and their donkeys, it says. All the while, they couldn't erase the idea that they deserved it. Well, you know, every single one of us sitting in this room here today deserves whatever punishment God would choose to deal to us. We deserve it. There's not a person in this room who's not a sinner. There's not a person in this room who is not guilty before God in the flesh. But of course, through Christ, we have the forgiveness of sin because that's what God wants to do. And, and, and as He forgives us for our sin, we are no longer guilty in the technical sense before God and we are cleansed. That doesn't mean we still don't have a guilty conscience a lot of the time. I don't know about you, but you ever feel like, oh no, <laughs> i got to confess that again. We have a tendency to fail often. And sometimes I think we assume that something bad comes into our lives because it's God smacking us, punishing us. Scripture says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God allows things into our lives solely for the purpose of discipline, not for the purpose of punishment. God's purpose to His people is to discipline us, to make us like Christ, not to smack us around because He's, at, he's mad at us, because our sin has been removed in Christ. Verse 19, Genesis 43. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we had brought it back in our hand. 
We have brought down money, uh, other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he said, Be at ease, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men to Joseph's house and gave them water and washed their feet and gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. Talk about mind-boggling. These guys are absolutely dumbfounded. They do not understand what's going on. <laughs> Does God always explain everything to us? No, just as I read in that poem. God is the one who looks upon the pattern that he is designing, but we look at the underside. You ever look at the backside of a canvas, you know, a thin canvas where the paint starts to blob through, or, or at the underside of a weaving, strings running every its way and hanging down, it just doesn't look like much of anything. But the other side is the pattern. And God isn't going to explain it all to us here and now because he expects us to live not by sight, by knowledge, but by faith. That he knows what he's doing, he'll do it all right. And, and the more we make that a part of what we know and believe, the more we're able to count it all joy, my brethren, when you face various trials. Now, we don't have time today to go into this meal, which we'll do next week. But as this whole process continues, these brothers are carried from one mind-boggling thing to the next until the lightning bolt from heaven comes down and they discover that the man is Joseph. Truly one of the great dramas of all history. Kind of a drama that to me makes all the made-up dramas kind of pale into insignificance in comparison. 